We started this podcast because after 10 years in practice, I found myself suddenly kind of enjoying vetting, which surprised me after a decade of emotions around work that fluctuated between moments of enthusiasm, sometimes tolerance, and sometimes outright resentment. So I wanted to figure out why. What had changed? I've since figured out that there were many factors that had contributed to that increased enjoyment of vet life. But one of the reasons was that where I was in my career at that stage, I felt appropriately rewarded. I was running a successful business that allowed me a lot more financial freedom, which included the flexibility to work less and do some of the other things that I loved. I felt confident in what I was doing and in what I was charging. I felt valued. And when I say valued, I mean that in the we appreciate you in what you do way, as well as in the dollars and cents, or pesos, or rands, or pounds, or euros kind of a way. But many of us struggle with those dollars and cents, especially when it comes to attaching them to the saving animals thing that we do for a living. There seems to be this mindset of, we don't really care about the money, but we should. Here's why. When Olivia, our guest for this episode, says that in her coaching work, she hears one story over and over and over. I'm overworked, I'm poor, and I'm lonely. In this conversation, we address that poor part, including the mindsets that keeps us stuck in this place. Conveniently, addressing that part also directly affects the overworked bit, and maybe even the loneliness part, which we touch on as well in this conversation. Quick note, this episode is not just for practice owners. I don't know about you, but as a currently employed vet, valuing what I do is still something that I haven't completely mastered. So who's Olivia? Dr. Olivia James is an equine dentistry specialist, a former practice owner, and the founder and director of the educational platforms, the Veterinary Dental Company, and the Equine Practice Company, and mentor and teacher through the business masterminds and coaching groups that she hosts for equine practice owners. Also, one of her greatest achievements was being guest number 19 on the Vet Vault. If you missed that one, go and have a listen to our conversation about balancing family and career. As you can tell, Olivia has a lot to teach, but in this conversation, we narrow it down to valuing ourselves and our work in terms of money. Basically, how to avoid overworked, poor, and lonely. Well, time is money, so let's get to it with Dr. Olivia James. Welcome back to the Vet Vault. Hi. I haven't had the opportunity much to say welcome back to many people yet. So we're getting there now. We're oh. getting the favorites back on for around two. And it's been going long enough that enough time has passed between interviews so that things have changed for you as well. And hopefully, your, well, maybe your perspectives have changed and the things you can teach us have changed. So I'm really excited to dig in with you. I'm just scrolling back. I want to see when your episode was actually out, what number you were. Yeah, I couldn't remember. Was it about parenting or women owning practices or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ma- making it work, making your career work for you as a parent. So November 2019. Wow, that was <laughs> a while it. ago. And we are now at episode 80, 80-something. 80 well, by the time I release you, wow. you're going to be pretty close on 90. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll make you 90. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get a summary. So for anybody, well, let's remind people, we'll do a full bio at the beginning again, but equine dentistry specialist, previous practice owner of, a, of an equine business, an equine practice, right, mobile practice. Mobile with a hospital base. With a hospital base. And then the specialist thing, 
still working as an equine specialist dentist. And what else have you been doing between November 2019 and now? A lot's been happening for you. My goodness, so much. Gosh, where do I even start? So the specialist thing, so that's only really recent. So I think when I was speaking to you last time, I didn't pass my practical exam for the American Veterinary Dental people. So I had to go back and do that. Was called off in 2020 and was lucky enough to get permission to leave Australia in 2021. So went over, did that, managed to pass, which is pretty cool. Got a nice uh, two-week holiday in hotel quarantine. And really only just two weeks ago was my application to be a specialist in Australia. So registered was accepted. Oh, so you, you've actually only been a registered official equine dentistry specialist for two weeks? Less than two weeks, yeah. Wow, <laughs> good timing. I actually didn't <laughs> realise that. It's taken a while. I started in 2014, so it's taken a while. Oh, wow. Uh, what else? So we're, we've grown a lot. We are four people, four part-timers in the business now. Our programs have definitely expanded so we started off with the online education in equine dentistry and actually thanks to COVID that went absolutely gangbusters we had planned a online launch in the second week of March 2020 not of course not knowing not having the ability to know that COVID was going to hit so that went really well and the flow-on effect for that is I got asked to do some business coaching for some of the vets who were going through the program I would meet them for a one-on-one and help them with what equipment they should be using, help them to set their goals, help them with some pricing and some marketing. And there was one vet from the US email me back and said, I did everything that you suggested and it's worked amazingly well. Will you coach me? And I went, oh my God, I don't have time to do individuals, but I can put a group together. So we started a group and now we're up to our fifth group, which is pretty cool and pretty amazing. What else? We've just released last year uh, general education, general CE for equine practitioners or mixed practitioners that see horses. We have a new secret squirrel, super secret program. We're doing a joint venture with an overseas vet. We can't tell you about that right now. It's under wraps. It's very secret. Still still horse related? Well, they're all horse-related because that's my area of expertise. We ran some virtual internships for equine dentistry too. Pretty cool. Wow. So the journey went, had a practice, decided to specialize, got really good at one thing, at horse teeth, went, okay, I like fixing horse teeth, but let me help other people get better at fixing horse teeth. And then they said, oh, yeah, now we can fix horse teeth, but our businesses are still shit. <laughs> can you, can, and you went, well, I know a few things about business. Let me give you some sideline advice on how to actually make a living from fixing horse teeth and horses and started coaching that. And they went, oh, this is the important stuff. Yeah. And it's not only about making a living, but being happy and having profitable and effective practices and, you know, all the good things that we actually want. I had to think about this week, right? I'm creating a community for the vet vault listeners and subscribers and the clinical stuff, like an online community and trying to create the words for the landing page and what it's about and, you know, the why, why we're doing it. (laughs) And there's so many words that we try and bandy about what we're aiming for with our careers, with our lives, with our lives as vets. And I always get stuck. We've called this the non-clinical vet vault, the vet vault thrive. Or I like flourish is another word. I was trying to think of a good word. And in the end, I just went, I just want to be happy. 
I want to be a veterinarian, do work that I like, and beyond that, and be good at it. I want to be good at it because to me personally, that contributes to happiness. But all, overall, the word, and it's such a slippery term that people actually don't like saying happiness because it means so many different things for different people. But I just want to be fucking happy as a vet. I like the word flourish. That's a great one. Yeah. I feel like I'm kind of stealing it from one of our previous guests. <laughs> She's, her business is oh, called no. Flourish okay. Ed. That was just... It's <laughs> <laughs> a flourish. How to be a flourishing vet is what, what you're teaching. So I think sometimes the temptation is when you're talking about happiness, people will often go, oh, it's just going to be a happy joy joy and everybody's going to stand around clapping and chanting, which is not the case. Yeah, I know. I think that's why we don't use the word happy because it's such a broad term. But certainly to me, that's not it. Happiness means purpose, means doing something worthwhile. Fulfillment. Want to get up in the morning and go, yes, I'm excited for my day and not, oh, another day. Can't wait to get home and just have a beer. That's not happiness. <laughs> that's, that's survival. <laughs> so in the intervening years since 2019 and now, you've obviously learned uh, a hell of a lot, a lot of skills and marketing skills and teaching skills and business skills. Have you changed your mind about anything majorly? Is Olivia's way of thinking 2023 different to Olivia 2019? I don't know if I've necessarily changed my mind on something, but I'm an equine vet. My masterminds are for equine vets. And over the last couple of years, I've interviewed so many people they all come in with the same story. It can just it can be a different face there and a different sounding voice, but they're all coming with the same story. So I've just become more aware of how hard it is for some people, how having a, a practice that has low profitability, they're overwhelmed, they're lonely. That's not something we really hear people talk about a whole lot, loneliness in equine practice. I'm sure it could be in, in other types of veterinary practice as well. It's a really big thing, especially if you're a solo vet practice. So yeah, just becoming aware of how many people are hurting at the moment. So the story is I'm overworked, I'm overwhelmed, I'm underpaid and I'm lonely. Yep. By far and away, they are the four recurring themes. And is that an equine practice? I wouldn't say unique, but do you think it's more prevalent, that story, for because of the nature of equine practice, because you're on the road and running your own show? Or, or do, you think, do you think it resonates with smallies GP clinic owners as well? Look, I think not so much for smallies because I guess my niche is the small solo and micro equine practices, so the part-timers, and they, by nature, they tend to be a lot smaller with staff so that it might be a solo vet or a solo vet with maybe one nurse or one tech and maybe a part-time office manager. It's not a big group and sometimes it's just them by themselves and that can be really hard to just go throughout your day and talk only to clients and not have that kind of community around you. Yeah. So we wanted to, this topic for this conversation is going to be focusing on the I'm underpaid part of it. But I have to ask the in that equation of that story, the I'm lonely story. How do you fix that? How, well, how do you address it? How do you start? What's your advice for people going, doing this thing? I see people every day, but I'm really lonely doing what I'm doing. Well, I guess that's one of the problems that the mastermind solves for them is it brings together a community of people who are in the same boat. And I think community is what a lot of people are missing these days. They 
it's just too easy to get up and go to work every day and do your job and come home and sit and I sit on the couch and have a beer, like you said. But where's their tribe? Where is their community? Where are the people that they lean on and can go to for support and advice? And I think a lot of people, especially with since COVID, where we were very isolated and we had to stay at home and we couldn't go to work and we were kind of removed from our own community, I think that's really badly affected a lot of people. So if it's not something that I do, for example, in the masterminds, then I really encourage people to go out and find their community. So it doesn't have to be a veterinary community. You could join a crochet club. You could, you know, go and learn how to do lawn bowls. It doesn't matter what it is, but people need people at the end of the day. Even introverts need people. And we forget that. And I know this, but life gets busy and you've got other priorities I listened to a very interesting discussion the other day. I'll put a link in the show notes. I can't remember, but it comes back to the word happiness. A happiness scientist, researcher, consistently the studies show that, and this is as you get older especially, the thing that is going to contribute mostly to happiness slash well-being, whatever, as you get on in life is going to be your primary relationships. So your significant other, husband, wife, partner, whatever, and friends. Good friends, close friends. And interestingly, not your kids. Because that's where I make a mistake. And I think a lot of people, you focus so much on kids. That's the bulk of your life is, is circles around kids. But what the guy says is, yeah, your kids are going to be with you until they're 17, 18, 20, maybe. And then they're gone. They love you, but you're not the center of their world anymore. And then you're going to go, oh, shit, I'm really lonely. My best buddies are, I've left the home and they don't give a shit about me. <laughs> no, they don't not give a shit, but they've got their own lives. And then the discussion focused on obviously relationships, focusing on your primary relationship if you have one, but then friendships and going as an adult, friendship is work. You have to commit the time and the effort to creating relationships with other adults with shared interest and things like that. And I like the way that the guy talked about it. He says it. It's not easy anymore as an adult. As a kid, you're in school and you're necessarily, you hang out with other kids and friendships just happen. It's just, it's an easy skill for a kid to make new friends. You lose that skill as an adult. You have to schedule almost and say, yeah, I need to hang out with a friend once a week, pick somebody. And it might be a bit awkward initially because I'm not used to just hanging out with other adults anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to pay attention to it. You can't just sit back and expect everybody to come to you. Yeah. Getting very, very sidetracked from money, but I think it's important. <laughs> but let's let's get back into to we business. Get sidetracked. <laughs> I know it's the joy of the podcast. I'm allowed to. So let's get back to business and charging. We want to talk specifically about charging correctly, charging confidently. How did you get good at it? Like, did you? you it's not something you guys weren't taught at uni how to run a successful business, how to price your services. So was it a slow process or did you have a point in your career where you were running your business where you went, jeez, this is, I need to change because it's not ticking the boxes for me? It was actually kind of both. I remember plenty of times sitting there going, uh, okay, who's going to draw the short straw? Am I going to pay my staff? Am I going to pay my suppliers or am I going to pay myself? And I can only do two out of three. And consistently I would lose out and I'm not the smartest person. I didn't learn the first time around, but when that started happening again and again, I'm like, okay, this is a problem. We're really only just scraping by and I'm not satisfied with that. 
I mentioned last time I joined the Tony Robbins Platinum Program and the area of expertise that that kind of organisation has is in personal development and relationship and, and business. And one of the pivotal moments for me came when I was in a business workshop, I guess, or seminar in, in Sydney and sitting amongst all the platinum partners because it's, it's pretty expensive to join and I had to definitely scrape, you know, beg, borrow and steal to make the monthly payments. I couldn't afford to pay for it outright. And there was all these people sitting in the room. I thought when looking at them, I was like, these guys have made it. They're successful. They've made it in life. They've made it in business. And there was so many different types of businesses there. There was, you know, TV stations, cafe owners. One of the guys owns a tire shop in the US. So, you know, very, very different. And I thought to myself, I'm not special. I don't have it any harder than anybody else. If they can do it, I can do it. And what I got from that program was, first of all, the confidence to do it because learning without confidence is is nothing. You can know how to do something, but unless you actually implement it and follow through, then it's just, you know, it's like the shelf help. Just because you buy the book doesn't mean that you're going to understand and actually implement what you're learning. If I implemented everything I read, I'd be a superhuman. That'd <laughs> be amazing. It's called it's called shelf help. I like the self help books are sitting on the shelf. <laughs> but yeah, but that's that's where I, I learned about it because with fee setting, there's a couple. I mean, I will probably talk about that later. But there's a couple of different ways or a couple of different strategies to actually work out what you should be charging, and some are better than others, and some are more suitable than others for your individual situation. Okay, so it wasn't just a question of trial and error and experimenting and. Eventually you got there, you, you invested in active. Well, it was trial and error in the beginning, which is why it failed so dismally. <laughs> but once I actually put a strategy in place and, you know, had kind of steps to follow, it was much easier. And then how did life change for you once you started getting that in place in broader terms, just in terms of your, what we talked about earlier, your, your flourishing? Yeah, it was totally a, a game changer. It took the stress off about, Am I going to be able to make payroll this week? And I mean, it's not all about getting rich and making a lot of money. It's about, you know, as you say, it's about being happy in your in your life. You know, that's work and personal as well. So I think just having a higher disposable income or earning more money in your practice, it just gives you better choices. So you can, you know, if you're looking at equipment, you can maybe afford to go for the better equipment rather than cheaper one, or you might be able to afford to buy new rather than used. And you can, you have the funds to be able to grow your practice. So many things that change. It just, I guess the word the or the feeling that comes to mind when you, when you ask me that question is that I could just relax a little bit. It didn't have to be so stressful. Yeah. Peace of mind. So how many people have you coached through this process, Olivia? In the, in the last couple of years, the business coaching. So five groups, what does that translate to in terms of number of, of Yeah, um, Gosh, I'd actually have to go through and count, count it. I think it's somewhere in the first year group, um, first year group, sorry, it would be probably around 40, 40 people. And I only ever intended it to be a 12-month program, but but they didn't want to leave. So so it's kind of evolved and morphed into we offer a, we offer a second year program as well and that's that's a bit different first year is all about systems and processes and and confidence and mindset and then the second year is about strategic planning and implementation to get your practice to where you want to take it 
Okay. Have you got standout favorite case studies of somebody who came to you in a in a bad place and then seeing them at the end of a course or a year or two years being a whole different story? Gosh, how do you choose? I, I'm not sure how how you choose about that one. Um, a couple of the, I guess, really successful stories that come to mind, they have similarities that they, I mean, of course, they're equine practices. So they're more likely to be in rural areas and in lower socioeconomic areas. There's one practice that they were able to leave their side gig and go full-time and they are smashing it, you know, 55% profitability, got lots of work, have really good clients. There is another vet in the USA. This one was a fun one. They were doing consults for free or sometimes they would charge a consult fee of $25 and they covered a huge geographical area. A couple of little kids at home was working all hours, couldn't take a wage, couldn't afford to go on holidays, but came in with the mindset that I've hit rock bottom and there's the only place you can go from here is up. So I started working with her and 18 months later, there are three vet practice. They are killing it and they're putting a lot of systems in place to be able to help and support their staff as well. So on training about money mindset and things like, I mean, again, it's not just about the money, but having your systems and processes in place, like do you have adequate insurance? Uh, I'm not talking about vets or vet practices, but for people in life, do you have your safety net set up in case something would go wrong? So that's been pretty cool that they've been, it's kind of like the ripple effect. So I help them and they help themselves, but then they go out and help the people around them as well. And that's pretty cool. But it's not always about the people that are getting really profitable. Some people come in to say, I want to downsize my practice and I want to be lower my stress and have a better work-life balance. And, you know, they're very successful. They're not as exciting stories, I guess, as as the other ones, but they are very successful in, in their own right. And that's the important thing because not everybody wants the same thing. They all want something different, even though there might be similarities. So it's it's about working towards what they want and having a plan in place and getting some milestones and some markers and things like that just so they can keep making progress. Sorry, the, one, <laughs> the story you told of the, the free consults, what was lesson one? Yeah, you should charge a consult fee for the work you do. Was that, was that the first lesson? <laughs> Session one done. Let's let's meet again in six months' time. <laughs> well, that's actually what I what I do when we meet for an interview because they have to be the right sort of person to come in. You can't have people with big egos or or anything like that. And we actually go through and I set some prices for them and give them the confidence to implement it because sometimes people just need to know that it's okay to do it, like to have permission. So I say to them, if you need permission to do it, tell them Olivia said you can. So they're kind of transferring the blame or the responsibility a little bit. Before we dive into the details, and I have many questions already, but there's a chance that this might sound like, okay, this is going to be an episode for business owners, for small business owners to set pricing in that. Does it go beyond that? Does it go to the employed veterinarian in smallies or equine? Um, are we going to talk about the mindset as well? Because it is. Even though it's not our practice, we still have to charge. And like, I don't own a vet business at the moment, but I still have to think about pricing. And and I think for a lot of employed vets, they will look at the prices that they are billing out to clients and go, oh, that's 
I'm uncomfortable with that or there's still an emotion attached with pricing, even if it's not your practice. So is this going to be worth listening to? I think so. It's about valuing yourself and valuing your services. If you have a think about how many years it took you to complete the vet degree, all the years of experience, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars of education is in your head right now? So if you actually had to put a dollar figure on it, that amount is freaking huge. And then there's the the other side, which is the business side. I mean, businesses have to make money, otherwise they become a not-for-profit, and that's a totally different set of rules there. But they have to be able to turn a profit so they can afford to pay for everything. The owner can be rewarded for the risk and effort of setting up a practice. And I think sometimes the temptation is for associates is to think that there's this magic bank account that automatically just refills the day before payroll is due and the magic money just magically appears in there and that's how they get paid. I don't think they ever take the time and it's not their fault, they just haven't been exposed to it, but take the time to think, okay, well, where does that money actually come from and how much does it cost to run a vet practice? So if any owners are out there that want to help their staff understand how expensive it is to run the the vet practice you can do an exercise called I think it's called 100 pennies or there's different variations depending on where you are in the world where you can sit down with 100 five cent pieces here in Australia five cent piece and so when there's 100 of them each coin represents one percent of your revenue and you can get the staff to guess what it costs to run a vet practice so you know maybe X percent goes to your drugs and consumables X percent goes to wages etc etc And then once they have completed that and they kind of do it in a group exercise, that can be a little bit of fun. You actually tell them the statistics in a percentage of of your practice and you just watch the light bulb go off in their brains. Like, you know, many people have no idea the costs involved in in running a business. Can we get the clients to play this game with us as well when they have a whinge about it? That would be an interesting one, wouldn't it? (laughs) When the client says, this is... This is an outrage. All you care about the money is, hey, come, come through to our staff room. We have a game <laughs> we should play. Yeah, and an interesting statistic, the average profitability of an equine practice is somewhere between 5 and 10%, up to 15% for an ambulatory practice, which I think is awful. That's an awful percentage. So to put that in perspective to other businesses, like I, I know nothing about business other than vet business. What's a healthy profit margin for a standard business? I think it's so variable and depending if you are a service-based business or a goods-based business. But I guess what I compare it to is, say for example, the stock market. For a lot of practice owners, they're better off putting their money in the stock market. Rather than buying a vet practice. Yeah, (laughs) because often they're just renting a job, right? And it's not a job that you can leave because even if you do leave, you're still going to have ongoing costs. And if you're not bringing in any income, how are you going to pay for that? So it's a, a complete hamster wheel and it can be really difficult to get out of that. Well, hang on. So let's unpack that. So I'm a youngster, pretend uh, I want to start a practice because <laughs> I, I want to make, uh, <laughs> make money. I want some independence and have a successful practice. I'm going to go and borrow a million bucks to start a practice, buy a practice, get equipment or whatever. And you're saying if I am at a profit margin of sub 10%, or whatever, I'm better off actually just borrowing a million bucks and investing it in the stock market and not killing myself <laughs> working every day and dealing. I mean, there'll be finance people 
far smarter than me that can run the figures for you. That's not something that's within my ability, but that's the general gist of it. So we're renting a job. Well, that's... uh, It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's a good way of looking at it. It's a good kick up the ass to say, well, maybe I should care a little bit more about my profit margin as a a business. (laughs) Well, for employed vets listening to this as well, I've got a great story. I know a, a magnificent recent grad vet who works in a small practice and was there for a couple of months and then started saying to the owners, I don't think we charge enough. My friends who work in other clinics are prices and she could see stress levels are high and the prices works all the time and and went through with them and said, I think we should charge this for this. I should charge this for this. I think it's totally... And they did, and everybody's happier. They can employ more staff, the whole thing. So it's not just up to the practice owners to do this. It's you're, you're allowed as an employee to start having a say in this. Because it's in the end, it's for your own good. If you one day want to ask for a pay raise, it's in your own interest that the business is a successful business. Yep, if you want more support staff, if you want some practice building excursions, there's a local wet practice I know of that takes everybody to the beach or goes sailing. I mean, that would be pretty cool, but... It, the money's got to come from somewhere. There's no magic bank account. Yeah. All right, so let's start with the stumbling blocks. What are the most common things you see in your clients? What are their mental blocks against charging decently? What are their fears around charging? Yeah, it is, it's really fear-based. So the biggest problems that I see is that veterinarians are fearful that our clients will judge us for being greedy and they will no longer like us. So I think I mentioned this in the first podcast, but the two biggest fears of human beings as a whole is that they're not enough, and if they're not enough, they they won't be loved. So that goes right to the heart of it. People will judge me. People won't like me. I'm not going to be enough, and, and I won't be loved. So it's a very complex mechanism. That's absolutely right because, again, we're a caring profession. We, we made a promise that we'll take care of animals, and that's what we want to do. And if there's a financial stumbling block, if our pricing is too high, then we won't be able to do what we do. They fear that the clients will leave them. And if they're already a practice that's maybe not doing very well and they lose clients, that's a very stressful situation or even even thought. So people will tend to try and maintain the status quo because at least in the position where they are, they have a reasonable amount of certainty. But if they go and be brave and go and change some things, it could go well, but it could go really badly. So I think in general, it's easier to stay where you are than to change. And then does that fear get reinforced every time that you do have a complaint? Because I feel like regardless of what you charge, you're going to get some clients have a whinge about it. Oh, that's preposterous. Oh, I can't believe 100%. you guys, can't believe yeah, you guys charge how much. You, that's exploitative. Don't you care about animals? I, oh. Yeah, we've, we've heard it all. Yeah. I mean, I've got to admit, I haven't mastered that fear. I can't help but take it personally. And I think it's because I care so much about the patient and about the client and I want them to be healthy healthy and happy. But what we have to remember is that it's not about us. So when clients are saying, oh, wow, that's really expensive or I can't believe it costs that much, it's nothing to do with you. It's nothing to do with the prices. It's more about them vocalizing their internal thoughts going that's expensive for me for my situation and maybe I'm a bit fearful so this is from a client's perspective I'm a bit fearful about how I can afford that and maybe they're a bit disappointed in themselves because they might not have the funds for it 
and we do had a bit of a culture. I mean, definitely I see it in my kids where it's not my fault. It's not my fault. So they tend to just vocalise and blame somebody else for the problems that the client might have. And you just happen to be an easy target because you're standing there. Yeah, I, I, do, I must admit I do struggle with that. And it happens so infrequently, actually, if you think about it. You think about how many consults you see and how many things you book, how many people say yes or say no, but say it in a polite way. And it's very infrequent that you get the complete asshole, the person who has a really emotional response around money. But it does stick into that fear center. It sticks to go, oh, if I they're going to get angry at me and I want to be liked, as you say. I like it when people like me. I want to just, I just want to help animals. I don't want to have fights with people about money. Yeah, 100%. But, you know, there are people that say that if you're not getting some complaints about your fees, then you're not charging enough. You're going, you're going to be too cheap. So I think there has to be a, a nice little balance there. No, I think it's also, you said earlier, you're allowed to have permission. It's You have permission to care about money. That stinger that they use, that knife in the back of all you care about is the money. We hate that because it's so far from the truth because it's not all we care about. But you do care about the money. I do want to get paid for the work I do. I actually think I may have said it on here before. I have a confession. It's not, I'm not saying people should do this. I actually said that to a client once. <laughs> it was not my, my greatest moment, but it was when I ran the emergency clinic. It was three in the morning and some procedure. I was tired. It's been a long couple of weeks. And she had a whinge at three in the morning about the cost. And she gave me the line, all you care about the money. And I'd had enough. And I said, that's not accurate. I said, I do care about getting an animal better, but it's three in the morning. So at three in the morning, I do care about the money, yes. And she couldn't answer. She just went, uh, okay, <laughs> end of conversation. But I'm not saying it's the right answer, but it's maybe a good mindset to say, well, yeah, I do. It's okay. It's not, it's not sinful. It's not ethically wrong to care about the money. That's right. I remember this was many years ago when I was a, an associate and I had two kids in daycare and I was standing in the supermarket working out what, groceries I was going to buy and I remember standing in the meat section going I'm working full-time as a veterinarian I'm paying for two kids in daycare and I had to work out if I was having sausages or mince that week because I couldn't afford the steak and I went something's got to change this is not okay I'm working my guts out here so I had to figure out how to be you know smarter rather than work harder. I think the other fear that I've experienced and seen in practice owners, it's A, what will my clients say about my about what we charge? There's also a little bit of what are my staff going to say? Because staff will react. They used to X and they are often the ones on the front lines copying the abuse. How do you address it with a practice owner? How do you introduce? Because there is the temptation for staff we talked about earlier, that if they lack the understanding of the business to go, oh, prices are going up, the boss is getting rich. Yeah, I think it's ridiculous what we charge. That's a two-part answer. So the first part is, do you have the right people on the bus? So do you have the right sort of people in your environment? Because mindset can be difficult to change and everybody comes into life with their own stories about money, about relationships, about work ethic, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then second of all, I really think that that's for squarely on the shoulders of the business owner or the practice manager. It's actually their job to educate the staff about all this, how much it costs to run the practice, why the fees are what they are. And so doing something simple like that 100 penny exercise is a really great place to start. The other fear is what's the guy down the road charging? So 
So I'm an equine vet. I've got a practice and there's the other one who works in the same area and I know their consults are that. How can I possibly price myself higher for the same service? I exactly, It comes back to losing clients then. How do you address that one? Because surely that's a, did you get that from your clients going, your coach clients? Not so much. And I think that comes with confidence as well, because at the end of the day, knowing that the average rep practice has a profitability of five to 10 or up to 15%, if you do what everybody else is doing, you're going to get the same results as everybody else. And that's just a lifetime of misery to me. So once you have the mindset about having some confidence and charging what you're worth, you tend to not care about what other people are charging. Yeah, that's great. So you think about it and go, okay, well, I'm not going to race that guy to the bottom because I've, I've been to the bottom or I don't want to get to the bottom. I need to do what I'm going to do for me. And if that person wants to have a lifetime of suffering and choosing between sausages and mints, well, that's their decision. <laughs> it's not mine. Okay. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, and there's three different ways you can set your fees or strategies for fee setting. And probably the worst one is the bloke down the road method, which is where you, this is particular if you're talking about um, starting up a clinic, you get the price list for a memory of, so don't take the price list, let me start with that, um, but a memory of what the services would charge and you make that your charge. Some people might go a little bit lower because they think it'll attract more work. And while it initially will, you'll also get the shit kicking D-class clients or go a little bit higher to make that a little bit better. But the bloke down the road method is probably the worst, worst method you can apply when you're looking at setting your fees. Okay, so what are the better methods? You see there's three. So that's number one, bloke down the road, bad plan. What are the better plans? Yep. Uh, the other two. So the first one is value-based pricing and then the second one is a cost-based pricing. So the term I use for value-based pricing is what the market will bear. So the figure when you're looking at your individual services, and I, I tend to focus on services rather than products, but it's a, going to be kind of a guesstimate. It's less scientific, but that's based on the veterinarian's experience, skill, and confidence. To some degree, it will depend on what the competition are charging. So even though I said I don't care what anybody else charges, you still have to be within the ballpark unless you are like a Sue Dyson doing a lameness exam compared to the new graduate who has been out of vet school for a week. And then a very small consideration is the socioeconomic and geographical location, it's really not as important as many people think. So it's about if you are very highly skilled in, in one area, you can charge more for that compared to someone who's not skilled in that area. The second one is the cost-based pricing, and this is a lot more scientific. This is, it's, a, it's a very calculated approach. It involves sitting down and working out how much it actually costs you to provide that service. So it can be time-based. So if a procedure is going to take you an hour, what does it cost for you to, A, keep the doors open for that hour and what are the consumables and, and energy that your procedure is actually taking? So this involves everything from wages to cost of your vehicle, cost of rent, to staffing costs, you know, which is more than just wages. It's super payroll tax if you're a big company, benefits, your rates, your insurances, an allowance for wear and tear, so there's, there is a lot to unpack. In my experience, bigger businesses, and if you're a small animal practice, you're more likely to do a cost-based pricing. 
majority of equine practices are solo vet practices, whereas you're much less likely statistically to have a, a single vet small animal practice. It tends to be multiple people. They're more likely to pay attention to the business side of it compared to a, a single equine practice where they just want to go out and get the work done. So I think I think that's the difference. So most equine practices are going to be setting their fees on value-based and my gut feeling is in small animal practice, they do tend to be cost-based, but there's a lot of the bloke down the road pricing. Yeah. It's hard to completely ignore that factor. I want to dig into those two and a couple of sticking points. Let's start with cost-based. Well, hey, what do you teach? Let's say I'm, I'm new to your program. I have a struggling equine practice. I need help with my pricing. How do I determine my pricing? So far, I've just been looking at the bloke down the road. Where do I start? Which which method do you teach? We actually do the value-based pricing. And the reason is, is that you have to be fairly evolved in your business to know what your costs are. And often when people are coming to me, it's kind of like a shitstorm. Like there's no procedures and systems and processes in place and coming in with that all the baggage that they're bringing in, we don't necessarily want to start with that. You have to go and fix the urgent things. You have to put out the house fires before you can dig into that sort of thing. So we actually look at value-based pricing first and I tell them what they should set. That gives them some confidence. The cost-based pricing comes a little bit later on. Maybe the value-based pricing is not working for them. So I'm not saying that one is actually better than the other. They just suit very different models. Even if you are implementing the value-based pricing, it is still a good idea to know what your costs are. So, you know, sometimes those fee-setting strategies can be intertwined and use both of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like as a scientist mind, I kind of want to understand or at least be able to justify to myself based on the costs, well, I should at least be charging this to make sure I'm not going backwards. Would you be a very small percentage of the population that would think that? Oh, really? I say that, but do I do, but do I do it? No, I don't always do it. I, <laughs> yeah, most people go. Will I get pushback if I charge this? And if the answer is no, then they charge it. If the answer is yes, they don't charge it. So when we look at cost-based pricing to at least get an idea, are there in veterinary practice fairly big ticket items that people tend to discount, but it's easy, like forget about, not even consider in their pricing because it's easy to go. Well, these are my drugs. These are my materials. These are my wages. That's my rent. Are there things that people just don't consider when they work out what your hourly rate should be? It's the overheads. It's the intangibles. It's not the things that you can touch. It's not the drugs you're getting off the shelf or the, you don't, I'm not advocating touching your employees, but you know, they are, they are physically there. Whereas your insurance, you can't touch your insurance. You can't touch your, the electricity. Well, actually you could, but don't because you'll die. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, okay, so it's it's the stuff that goes out of the bank account every now and again and you don't actually see something on the shelf or walk through the door that you actually forget to count that in your bank account. And actually that brings me to another really good point because what I will commonly see is that business owners will judge the health of their practice based on the amount in their bank account at any one time. So especially for equine practice owners, many of them don't know how to read a profit and loss statement. So they open up the their app on their phone and go, oh, I've got enough money in there today. I mean, you could be super profitable practice and there'll be occasions where you won't have very much money in the bank. So it's not a very good way to judge the health of your business. 
that's a hard one to get your head around because I definitely did that when I when I ran the emergency business. I'd look at the bank account and go, oh, we're all good. Luckily, we had a, a quarterly meeting with an accountant and then he would sort me out pretty quickly. He was like, oh, yeah, you, you have that much in the account, but you're going to owe twice that much in tax at the end of this month. Like, oh, what? Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's about planning. And, I mean, there's different types of cash. There's operating cash, which is the result of your efforts in your business. There's investing cash. So if you're going to get a loan, maybe for some capital expenses. And then there's basically when you sell something. So if you've got a spare car that you sell the car or an old ultrasound, you, you sell that. I can't think of the term for it. That's a, not very important, that one. When we talk about the value-based pricing and you said the term there, what the market will bear, how much are people willing to pay? How far will they be stretched? And I've actually been a vet long enough and I've worked in many different places that my perception on that is shifting drastically. Like if you told me 10 years ago what what people will be paying these days, and it's weird, it's kind of like post-COVID. People's expectations of what they're going to pay for stuff is just up and they that I clearly had very twisted ideas of what people are able or and willing to to pay for veterinary services. Is there a line where it becomes a now we are, or is this what we're talking about? Now we are pricing ourselves out of the market and we won't be able to offer the services that, that I want to do. I'm not going to be able to make animals better because people are going to start saying no to what I'm doing. And it becomes almost an ethical line. Is there an ethical line where you go, yeah, people can pay it, but... Is it reasonable? I think a lot of, I certainly, I struggle with yeah, those. No, that's, that's very true. If, if you're charging half a million dollars for a consultation, <laughs> you're going to get zero people, maybe that one random person in the whole entire world. So there's definitely a, a line there. And, of course, with everything we do in our practice and our all our strategies and pricing and everything we do, it has to be ethical. I mean, that maybe I should have said that in the beginning, but that's actually got to be first and foremost is that you have to be ethical in your practices because if you are not and you go in with this idea of that I'm just going to make my prices as high as I possibly can, people are going to see right through you with that one and perhaps that is the instance where people are saying, oh, you're just a money-hungry vet, maybe that's true. So it's a good idea to sit down and actually ask yourself, is this appropriate for this situation? Am I being ethical about it? In saying that, one of the really common questions I get asked is that if we put these too high, then the people who can least afford it will suffer and their animals will suffer. That's not necessarily true. There's always other veterinarians around. There's always going to be other vets that are charging more than you or charging less than you. One thing I'm a big, big advocate of is if you are increasing the profitability of your vet practice, pay it forward. Have an angel fund so you can go and work really hard on your business and be rewarded for it, set aside a percentage of what you're earning and putting in an angel fund. And that can then be the funds that you can use for, you know, hardship cases or, or specific cases. And that will help a lot of vets in actually ticking the box. Or it can be if I'm profitable, I know that I don't have to work as hard seeing as many clients and therefore I can block off this day, every month or you know, whatever the time frame is, I can go and do some pro bono work for a charity. I mean, that, that's what I used to do is we used to just go and allocate, I think, one afternoon a month or every two weeks, I can't remember now, but we would basically just go and do pro bono work. And, you know, that was a great thing to do on a Friday afternoon. You just you came back from that just being pumped with how many animals that you could care for and help 
without being worried that because you worked for free, you then couldn't pay stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. When you start advising people about prices, you said earlier you don't worry too much or you don't look too much at stuff that you sell, at product. It's more service-based. Where do you start? Let's say I'm listening to this. I, I'm a practice owner, whether it's equine or smallies. I'm aware that I need to overall my prices. What do I do first? Because the sort of logical part, the default for me is to go, well, don't touch the stuff that people are going to shop around for, for example. So if you go down the road, that argument again, my consults, I can't stuff with my consults, I can't stuff with my spays, can't stuff with this because people are going to call around and then they're going to see, oh, you're expensive and then not use me. Does that argument hold water? Because then on the flip side, the consult, the spays and the, those sort of things, it's like, a, it's a large percentage of what you charge in there. And so making a small lift there could make a, a big overall effect. How do you think about that? Yeah, that's true. When I'm doing these interviews, I ask people to send me a list of their most, the 10 most frequently performed services. So consultations are always in this mix. So we don't spay horses as a routine thing. So I can't come on on that, but the principle <laughs> yeah. is the same. So I get them to send me their 10 most commonly performed procedures and then the number of those procedures they've performed in the last year. And I've got this little spreadsheet and I'm actually really proud of myself because this is something that I created and I go through, I learn a lot about their business and then can kind of get a feeling about where we should aim for within a price range. And I show them and I say, okay, if we go and increase this price by 10%, And I don't want you to work any harder because you're already exhausted and you already don't spend enough time with your kids. But what is the effect of increasing a price of 10% on a procedure that you do 40 times a year? And I fill in the spreadsheet and it, it calculates the additional revenue that that will create each year. And then, of course, you can work out the additional profit. And by the time you get to the end of that, for majority of the people I do this with, you're adding between fifty to 150000 to their profit every year. And this is not price gouging. This is not being unethical. This is about charging appropriately for what you're worth, but still the value-based pricing on what I think their market can bear from the information that they've given me. That's a game changer for these guys. Like When they look at that bottom figure and go, you're telling me I could have an extra $100,000 in my pocket as a result of sitting down doing something on a computer because business is an intellectual sport. It's not about working harder. I mean, we all want to improve our skills, but I never tell people that they need to work harder because that's just crazy. And you kind of see them sit there and go, wow, maybe I can send my kids to that private school. Maybe we can take my parents on holidays. You kind of see them ticking over their mind about what it means for their family and their life. And that's pretty special. And I think once you anchor fee setting and the and the mindset around that if you can anchor that to something that it is benefit for them for what they really want it just becomes a situation where they can't lose because they've got a driving force they know their why about what they want to improve their practice and it becomes a lot easier to implement and they do it once and they get some confidence and quite often I don't need to tell them to raise prices again they'll go you know what I did it it wasn't that hard I got zero pushback or maybe one or two but really nothing like I expected. So it just gives them the confidence to be able to make some decisions in their in their business and keep doing that over their career. So that's something really special. It's a 
It's a lovely thing to do. I like that tying it to something that's of value to you because I think a lot of us, if you ask me, am I money driven? I'm not money driven, but what are the things I, I value? You know, it's exactly as you say, it's a nice family holiday or even if you want to be charitable, say, well, donating money to something I care about or and tying it to that and saying, by doing X, you can achieve that in year one or two and this thing. And it's not about the fancy car or anything like that. Or you can even make it business-wise by changing your injection fee from $12 to $15. That's going to give you an additional $40,000 a year based on last year's data. And that's an extra receptionist or nurse or something, which is going to take the strain off your current team. So tying it to an outcome like that is a much better way to just go, who are you going to make more money? Because then that feeling of, well, I am just a greedy money-grabbing bastard, it does sneak in if you're that way predisposed. Yeah. It's yeah. about about finding your why and actually sitting down and making a plan about what you want, what you want your practice to look like and starting at the beginning and having a plan to go through to the end. It kind of all just integrates. Yeah, wow. It's easy to be slack about these things, though. I found when I ran a business, you kind of know I should, but I'm busy. I should change my prices, but I'll do it next week. But first, I've got to just do all this work or something like that. And actually, but you know, there's so many things that we're told we should do. We should get eight hours sleep. We should drink how many glasses of water. We should exercise. We should we should look at our prices. We should do personal development. We should eat all the rainbows. I mean, there's just so many things that we're supposed to be doing it gets overwhelming and when things get overwhelming, it's just easier to do nothing. Yeah, so what's the solution? It's knowing what you want. It's taking the time to sit down and go, okay, what do I want from my life? What do I want from my practice and how is my practice going to support me with what I want in my life? Not many people actually have a plan for that. So if you're listening, sit down tonight, spend five minutes what do you want? What do you want from your practice? What do you want from your life? Most people won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Is it what I'm trying to look for a word? Shelf improvement for podcasting. There's got to be something like that for a pod- podcast that you listen to that you go, oh, that's cool. And then I never do anything about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it's because it gets overwhelming. There's so many things that we're supposed to be doing. Are we missing out on anything here, Olivia? Have we covered the I found that really useful. I guess maybe that the take home is that have some confidence in yourself, value yourself with your skills and knowledge and expertise and the risk associated with starting a, a practice and just give it a go. It doesn't have to be perfect, particularly with fee setting. If I have vets who are really nervous about this, again, if they need it, and I ask them if they need it, I say, I give you permission to drop your prices right back down. If it doesn't work, drop them right back down. I've had zero people do that. Right. So nobody's gone, oh, shit, that was a disaster. Um, Prices are coming down again. So it's a little bit of courage and a little bit of confidence. One of the things I, I used to do in my equine practice is that, I mean, we all have shit days, right? It's either super hot or super cold or a cranky client or a patient that died or, or whatever it is. If I'd had a particularly shitty day, I would go home and I would just be like, go in and change three prices. And that made me feel a little bit better. <laughs> you know, maybe that's just that's just my psychology. Um, but, you know, maybe it's like you got kicked during a rectal exam. I would go home and I'm saying, I am worth so much more than that. 
I'm just changing the prices. And when you bring that energy and the mindset into it, it's just so much easier to do. I really like that. When you have those, I'm going to swear, I'm trying to swear less on the podcast, but those fuck this shit moments just to go, I'm just going to charge more. <laughs> God. Righto. Should we wrap up with getting a little bit more personal again? What have you listened to on podcasts in the last couple of months or so that stood out for you that, that you want to share? Um, I'm not really a podcast listener, although I listen to yours. Can I give a plug for the Vault one? Um, <laughs> yes. I love those ones. They're very interesting. But I tend to be more a book reader and you're going to laugh at this one. So we've just come back from a this big trip overseas. A lot of it was work, but it was also some family holiday as well. And we had this little Airbnb in a converted monastery near Loch Ness in Scotland. It was a very cool place. And they had a James Herriot book on the shelf, and that's what I've been reading lately. <laughs> James oh, Herriot. Really? So, you know, go and like, so I think I read it when I was maybe 11 or 12, and, and I'm sure back in the depths of my psyche that's one of the things that made me decide I wanted to be a vet. But it's been really nice just revisiting the stories and actually being in the UK at the time in similar countryside to the setting of, of the book. Um, it's just been really nice. So have you got insights into the books or seeing it in a different way now to what you would have had as the pre-vet young Olivia reading this book? Because I haven't. I read them as a kid as well, but I've never actually revisited them as a, as yeah. a veterinarian. All the things that we're fearful of as adult veterinarians in this year are the same things that they were fearful of way back then. They were facing the same struggles with the elements and the weather and the business and staff and cranky clients and, you know, all of that sort of thing. There's a story in there where they went out to see a sick cow and the owner spent the whole time telling them that their boss would do a better job than they would or the previous vet would do a better job or they would get their neighbours over to chime in about what was wrong with the cow. I'm like, you know, that still happens today. Nothing's <laughs> changed in that respect. Yeah, we, we're quick to complain about how bad things are these days, but it's actually actually in many yeah. ways a lot better. I, I think there's never been a better time to be a vet right now. Like, like honestly, the tide has definitely changed. The, there's a big shift. The, the wages are rising. We are no longer competing for clients. We're competing for staff as well. And I think in general vets are much better now, especially in the last, I think, maybe 18 months is that because they've had to pay higher wages, they've had to increase their prices, they're less likely to put up with shit. So they're quicker to fire clients, they're quicker to have some boundaries in place to say this is acceptable and this is not acceptable and everything that's not acceptable, we don't want that in our life and they, they put some strategies in their place to remove that from their environment. I think overall that's only going to make people happier. Nice positive end to it. Okay, the... One question, the one message to all of the veterinary new grads of the world. Can you remember what you said last time? I can't. Do you remember? I could lie and say I remembered. No, but I listened back. I went back. I went and listened back to your previous answer. So I won't tell you yet. One message to all the new grads in the world about their vet careers or lives around it. What would 2023 Olivia say? I would say find something that you love. You know, you've heard the saying, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. I don't know if that's necessarily 100% true, but I remember as a new grad 
brand new new grad and my boss would go away, I would be terrified that I would have to ultrasound a tendon because I didn't have, know how to use the machine, that I would have to extract a tooth from a horse, not knowing that that's not even a realistic expectation. But here I am all these years later doing pretty much exclusively head and dental and oral surgeries because I just found that I, I loved it and it didn't become so much like work. The second thing I, I would say is it's your responsibility to educate yourself. There's no excuse for ignorance. So it's okay if you've never been taught that, but if it interests you, go and find someone to teach you, go and find some education. There's, I mean, you don't have to spend any money. You can go online and research this. You can read books, you can join masterminds, you can do programs. There's so many different ways to get education these days. So if that's what you're after, then pick up the phone, go on the website, do something about it. It's your responsibility. Now I'm curious to know what I said last yeah, it's time. Yeah, it's not that far different, uh, slightly different spin. You said do what you love. Last time you said get really good at something. You told the story about when you were a new grad and you you were getting bored about doing the same sort of cases and asked the boss, oh, is, it, is there not something else I can do? And your boss said, no, it actually really helps doing the same thing over and over until you're really good at it because that builds confidence in that thing, which then spills over into generalized confidence into other fields. It kind of ties in, yeah? Do you, you nice, you should... nice to know that I still agree with that. Yeah, no, I've <laughs> completely changed your mind and your wisdom. Oh, God. Olivia, that was so good. Again, I think this will be a, a very valuable one for the people who do need it. Big changes that can come from it. Thank you so, so much again for the time and thank you for the work you do for helping people to flourish, thrive, be happy. <laughs> um very happy to answer any questions if people want to reach out or if they've got a maybe a sticky problem. If I can help them, um, I will. Not only I feel that if I can help, I'm, I must. Yeah. Okay. Well, where can we find you? I'll put links in the in the show description. But if somebody's listening, where can they find Olivia? Um, gosh, a couple of ways. So we've got two websites. So the Veterinary Dental Company, if you just Google that, and the Equine Practice Company. I might send you the link for the mastermind one if this is resonating with anybody and they feel that they might like to have a chat to me to see if this could be a benefit for them and if they might be a good fit, I can send you a link for that. You know, we have the Facebook, Facebook pages as well and all that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm not hard to find. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you so much. Before we go, before we go, can I just congratulate you and the VetVolt organisation with how far you guys have come? I mean, that's pretty amazing. You're up to 80-something episodes and the clinical stuff as well. And then I know you just ran that retreat up in the Noosa hinterlands that I was lucky enough to attend the last um, day of. It's, it's fabulous and you're making a difference for so many people. So often we're not told, thank you, you're doing a good job. So I just wanted to say to you, thank you, and you're doing a good job. Oh, I really appreciate that. And uh, it's high praise from somebody, from you specifically. Thank you so much, Olivia. See how I left that last bit in there? It sets me up nicely to plug our clinical podcast. We've just recorded a bunch of stuff at the VEX Spring Symposium with some of the most respected names in the world of emergency and critical care. Look up at that emergency textbook on your shelf at work. That Hopper of Silverstein and Hopper. Yep, she was there. And all of that is coming to our clinical subscribers over the next few weeks, along with 360 plus other episodes already on there plus all of the show notes, 
which I have to brag about. These have become my number one reference at work, as well as most of the other people I work with. And I'm super excited to announce that we now have a new home for all of our show notes on a single website that is searchable, keyword searchable, so any keyword will take you to any of the episodes and any of the show notes that we have available. Out now, subscribers, if you haven't seen it yet, surprise, go and try it out for free for two weeks at vvn.supercast.com. Refresh your knowledge, get up to date with what the cool kids are doing in practice, get your confidence up and get your groove back, as one subscriber puts it. We also offer practice subscriptions, so email us at info at for more details on that. <laughs>